0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?
1: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again everyone and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Pallett and I'm an editor at howstuffworks.com. Sitting across from me as always is senior writer Jonathan Strickland.
0: Everyone my age remembers where they were and what they were doing when they first heard about the contest.
1: <laughs> oh, I know I have an idea where that might be from. Excellent. Um actually today we're off to see the wizard. Yes. Well, sort of.
0: The wizard of of Menlo, Menlo Park. Park. Yeah, so before we before everyone gets excited, we are not doing an episode specifically about Thomas Alva Edison in this episode. We're going to be talking about him a lot, but this episode's really about the first of a three-part series about the company General Electric or GE.
1: And why might we be mentioning uh Mr. Thomas Alva Edison?
0: Well, probably because he was one of four people that you could credit the the whole existence of GE. Uh, you know, without whom GE would not exist. That, right?
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: The other three I would argue would be, uh, Charles A. Coffin, Elihu Thompson, and Edwin Houston or Houston. I have no idea how he would have pronounced his name. Yeah. I've heard it both ways. So, uh, but, but Edison of clearly is the, the name that jumps out at people when you talk about General Electric. And it's no surprise. He was a, a famous inventor. Uh, an engineer. He was a great businessman. He was a very good showman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and in his day, he was the equivalent to a rock star. Yep. You know, yep. I mean, the newspapers wrote about him, and people would flock to see demonstrations. The same way you might go and try and get those second row seats to
1: see, you know, ACDC.
0: Yeah. There we go.
1: <laughs> it's. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, sorry, I just had to throw that in there. No, it's, I, I I
0: was struggling to figure out a good band name to throw in, but ACDC works so well. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, the reason I wanted to uh, to start with uh, with Edison specifically, and Jonathan's right, the, these uh, these four gentlemen are crucial in understanding where GE comes from. But yeah, uh, you, you know, in in uh, bus- the business world, yeah, uh, when two companies decide to merge, uh, they will often take the name that they think will be the most successful. And G.E., uh, actually the name itself derives mostly from Edison's company that he started, Edison General Electric.
0: Right. And to, to know about Edison General Electric, we actually have to go a little further back because G.E. traces its history back to even before Edison General Electric existed. Mm -hmm. All right. So, uh, you've got in 1876. Okay. So Edison was born in 1847. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. so Edison goes in 1876 and moves to Menlo Park, New Jersey, which is now called Edison, New Jersey. Yes. Uh, no relation.
1: There's no connection. There. <laughs> they don't, no reason. No, just,
0: no. no, it was, it was weird. I don't know. No, no. Uh, it is of course named after Thomas Alva Edison. Um, so in 1876, he creates an, an industrial research lab in Menlo Park. Mm-hmm. And, and this was a, a lab specifically meant to help study and, and push innovation in industry, Mm -hmm. not just, not just, you know, a think tank, but they were, Edison was really looking at ways to improve systems and create technology that would be useful. In some way, and uh, and that was his focus. So that's what GE traces its history back to was mm-hmm. that the formation of that lab in 1876, which is kind of funny because uh, when you think about it, there were other things going on at the same time that GE also owes its existence to. Yeah, and really, you could argue since the Edison, uh, the the General Edison or the Edison General Electric Company didn't exist yet. Uh, in fact, it, it wouldn't exist until 1890. It's kind of interesting to see the centennial trace back to um, to 1876. Yeah. But uh, in 1878, Edison formed the Edison Electric Light Company, mm-hmm. which was one of the many companies that would eventually kind of meld together to become Edison General Electric. Right. And uh, you guys probably know or at least have heard about Edison and his uh, relationship with the light bulb. Uh, he did not invent the light bulb. He, he created an incandescent light bulb that actually was useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were other inventors who had come up with incandescent light bulbs before Edison. It's just that they were they would light for a very brief amount of time and then they, they'd burn out. And so Edison was the one who actually managed to improve upon that. Uh, so we often credit him with creating the light bulb because he really created the first useful one.
1: Right. And then, of course, uh, one of the things that, uh, we touched on a moment ago about him being a shrewd business person, um, he was good about once he had, uh, set out to create this, this new light bulb, this more effective light bulb. He also, uh, got into the business of helping wire people's homes because, hey, I mean, let's, let's look at it from this perspective. You've got a light bulb, but people's homes aren't wired for electricity. So right. what's the point?
0: Yes. You, How many people does it take to screw in a light bulb? Doesn't matter. We don't have electricity.
1: Exactly. And so there, there were a lot of uh, um, wealthy business people who wanted electricity. I mean, hey, this is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, Mr. Edison was in the habit of um, he really wanted to set up an entire system, and uh, you know that's really kind of the background behind starting this. Laboratory, as Jonathan likes to say, is, hey, let's find ways to capitalize on this. We can, we can do this and we can wire homes. Let's, let's, what else can we do to uh, capitalize on what we know about electricity? And so he really got into the business along with all the other people with whom he worked of, um, Really making an electrical industry. And yeah. that's really what GE is about. And
0: he was even looking at things like electric railways, which that, yeah. that was, that yeah. was the method of transportation back in that time. You know, if you were traveling, if you weren't traveling by rail, you were traveling by horse. Yeah. Like so, uh,
1: electric uh, trolleys, streetcars yeah. type of So the,
0: these were really important projects for him. and, and – you know to be able to develop these things you also had to develop the infrastructure i mean the infrastructure mm-hmm. didn't exist either so this was an enormous undertaking and he employed lots and lots of other folks working with him many of whom contributed uh, uh to the innovative developments in the general uh, electric company uh, both before and after it actually became GE. Mm-hmm. So 1890, he starts to uh, to merge these different companies that he started together and calls it Edison General Electric.
1: So well, it makes sense. It's all these <laughs> different specialized companies, and now it's a general, general company. Yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, and because because it wouldn't make sense to call it one thing. Like call it the electric, you know, the electric light company. But they also work in rail. Yes, you know, that just doesn't make sense unless it's light rail. Oh, but uh, anyway, so uh at the same time that this is going on, there's another company mm-hmm. called the American Electric Company.
1: Yep. Now we touched on on uh one of Edison's major rivalries before yeah. on the podcast, of course, uh that being uh Mr. Tesla, whose Who's photo is still staring a hole into the side of your head. Yes. Yes. Uh, one of the funny things about this studio that we record in is, I mean, everybody on, on all the howstuffworks.com podcast records in this room. Yet we have, uh, Edison and Tesla in here with us and all the other famous yeah. people photos are out, out there. So yeah. Ha Uh, anyhow, we, we touched on his relationship. We also, um, uh, I don't recall if we mentioned, uh, George Westinghouse. In that podcast, he of he of course was uh, sort of instrumental in working with Tesla to bring around AC when when Edison wanted DC as the standard. But there were other people who were competing with Edison for. The purposes of wiring homes and bringing electric lighting to homes Yeah, and, that and, was, and businesses, I should say. Sorry. And
0: it, yeah, no, no. Uh, the American Electric Company was one of those. Yes. And uh, they, were, they were out of New Britain, Connecticut. And uh, there was a group of investors there that was um, uh, in charge of financing the company. But the company was kind of struggling. And uh, the company had been founded <laughs> – had been founded by two of those gentlemen I had mentioned earlier, Elihu Thompson and Edwin Houston, both of whom were, um, engineers. Uh, and, uh, Thompson was an engineer and inventor and Houston was an electric, electrical engineer. And, uh, they, they had founded this company. The investors had put their money into it, but they were kind of stuck in this tiny little region. There were some other investors who thought that the company had potential to grow and blossom, mm-hmm. but it needed to get out from under the thumb of those investors. And so they called in a fellow named Charles A. Coffin, who was a businessman. Yes. He was not an engineer. He was a guy who h- had a shoe factory um, and well, a very successful one, had become quite a wealthy man. And he was called in to actually buy out this company from under these investors, and it was renamed the thompson houston electric company mm-hmm. and it actually flourished it did really well in fact so well that it it was rivaling edison's general electric company especially in in specific regions in fact thompson houston electric you know one of the cities one of the cities we're very very close to right now was wired by thompson houston originally
1: really yeah
0: that would be Hotlanta, georgia <laughs>
1: what yes Indeed. Hmm. Yeah, it turns out that Mr. Coffin was there for the undertaking.
0: Yes, and we'll talk more about Coffin as well.
1: <laughs> so but, uh well no, I was gonna say uh, you remember when we talked about the uh Columbian Ex- exposition, yes. the, the Chicago World's Fair. Yes. Uh Thompson Houston was one of the rivals to Edison for uh lighting that exposition. So, yes. and they you know there was a bitter, bitter rivalry between the two companies there for a while.
0: But they kissed and made up. Because in 1892, so just two years after Edison General Electric was founded, in 1892, Edison General Electric and Thompson Houston Electric merged and they formed General Electric and the very first CEO of General Electric was Charles A. Coffin. Well, look at that. So Edison was considered a founder of General Electric and Coffin, since he had shown a very acute sense of business acumen. Aw, Yes, it wasn't obtuse; it was acute. Uh, he right. He ended up being uh, the the guy in charge, and he started to um, to really take take initiative. And in fact, he had a big test early, early, early on in the history of GE in 1893. So just one year after the company had been founded uh, out of these other two separate companies, uh, Coffin had to guide the company through what was called the Panic. Of 1893, yeah, it was a it was an economic depression. Aww. So we're just getting weird sound effects through the rest of this podcast. Apparently. Yeah, but we're doing our own foley. So yeah, hey. it's, it's great. It's no work at all for our producer. Hi Annie, we have a new producer today. Uh, uh, she's stepping in, uh, capably, I might add. So in 1893, you have this economic depression that actually was part of a uh, an economic bubble. In this case, in 1893, it was a railroad bubble. There was uh, such a run on trying to build out railroads throughout the country that there was an overbuilding problem. And this overbuilding problem ended up having a bubble burst and then banks began to fail. Mm -hmm. So if this sounds familiar, it's because you could say the housing bubble was very similar to the railroad bubble and that, in fact, we do not learn from our own history. But that's for stuff you missed in history class. This is tech stuff. I will concentrate on the tech. Anyway, Coffin ended up making this deal with banks where they would lend loans to GE in return for utility stock. And that actually kept the company going during this depression. And they were able to ride it out. And as a result, they're still around today. So in 1895, GE builds the world's largest electric locomotive wow 90 ton electric locomotive and also uh, builds transformers capable of moving this electric locomotive because without it you know you just have this enormous thing that sits there just like the light bulb in the house that has no electricity uh the transformers which were not optimus prime nor megatron we're talking about the transformers that are uh, able to change uh, electric current from one voltage to another effectively could handle up to 800 kilowatts and uh also that year in 1895, something else happened that would become an important part of GE's history. Uh, it was not directly involving GE at this point, but there was a scientist named Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen. Ah, uh, yes, he discovered something. Mm-hmm. He discovered X-rays.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I've I've heard about this guy, and uh, I see right through him.
0: Yeah. He's
1: totally transparent. Actually, uh, uh, Runchen's work uh, played a, a big part in GE. I mean, he's he's his work uh, will come up many times over the course of the next uh, three podcasts or two and a half podcasts, I should say. Yeah. Um, because GE, one of GE's major um, uh, industries that it's involved in is medical uh, equipment.
0: Yeah, especially medical imaging. Yes, but but medical equipment in general. And in fact, that, that first instance happened the next year in 1896. So just one year after X-rays had been first, uh, demonstrated to exist, uh, Elihu Thompson created electrical equipment that was capable of producing X-rays, which that, that actually launched GE's foray into medical imaging equipment.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that was the same year that GE got listed on the Dow in 1896. All right so uh yeah they're um they're already making headway into the industries that they would become known for further on in their uh in their history
1: yeah one of the uh the really good things if you can if you're a business person if you can find an industry that is uh getting started and and jump in with both feet like like these people did um you can make a a uh, pretty big um, impact on the industry. And that's exactly what, uh, what GE was doing at this point because they were uh, founding whole industries really when you get down to it. I mean, the medical imaging field really didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, as we know it today. And of course now we know. Uh, so much more about these things but GE was uh, certainly a leader in that department
0: yeah and if you've listened to our other podcasts about companies you've heard sort of similar stories things like Texas Instruments being really into the whole uh, the solid state electronics Mm -hmm. I mean Mm -hmm. uh, there are certain companies that really shaped the way these technologies developed it's not just that they were innovators but they actually because they got in so early they, they almost dictated to the rest of the world how these technologies would take form yeah and, uh, and occasionally you'll see a company really depart from that and make something pretty cool. But more often than not, you find out that the form that was settled on by the <laughs> the company that founded it is the one that's the most stable. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, GE was doing some uh, some really important work here. And in 1900, mm-hmm. they registered the trademark for the GE monogram.
1: Yeah, that's the logo. Yeah. Um, and And this is – not especially significant in a way, but in in another it is, because they're still using that exact same logo. Yeah. So they have established themselves as a leading brand and they are you know, it's it's a name known worldwide.
0: Yeah, and brand recognition is a tricky thing, right? You don't want to mess with it too much. And so GE has done a good job at preserving that. The the monogram itself has changed slightly. Sometimes the color scheme changes a little bit. Sometimes the the, the, the lines are adjusted a little bit, but in general it's the same monogram as was in, in, trademarked back in 1900. And also in 1900 they established a research and development lab. And uh, this was – this is the one that most people say is the first lab in the United States that was dedicated just to scientific research. That's all it was meant for. Yeah, they
1: realized that if uh, if they could come up with a lab uh, – <clears throat> See, now you're See, doing now it. See, you, now you messed with me See, now.
0: That's why, I, that's why I'm shortening it to lab now. You don't hear me saying
1: laboratory. Yes, that's true. Um, yeah, and the reason they they wanted to start a lab was uh, – y- you know you might think it's counterproductive. Well if they 're not necessarily working on uh g e stuff, how are they making money from this? Well, they figured out that um if they're working on uh you know in in a general direction towards something that they want to accomplish that uh, they will make discoveries that they can use and capitalize on later, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know that's actually pretty common in in the podcast that we've talked about that other companies have followed GE's lead in this regard and has paid off for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, look at look at Google and it's twenty percent time. Yeah, now you could also argue that a lot of the Google projects that came out of twenty percent time ultimately kind of didn't go anywhere, but the point is is that a lot of innovation that eventually finds its way into Google products and services comes out of that 20 percent time. It may not be its own individual thing. Like you might not point at a specific product and say this is the result of 20 percent time from Google. But you might see a feature that's in another product and say actually that, that grew out of right. this other project, that it wouldn't exist without it. So yeah, that's – Really, GE's recognition that uh, the innovation is going to play a major role in in industry, mm-hmm. and and of course, this is an era in the United States history where industry and innovation were paramount in in people's minds. I mean, it was one of those things that was just uh, stressed by by the news and just the the development of the industrial age
1: overall. So it was an exciting time, yeah. in, in the United States around that era.
0: Right around the same time, you've got the the physicists who are making incredible discoveries. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an era of discovery that is is hard to it's hard to exaggerate, you mm-hmm. know, because it was so amazingly important. It's like right up there with the Renaissance as far as uh, as as uh, discoveries and and uh, and the advancement of thought goes. Yeah.
1: Oh, by the way, that that lab. That lab was in Schenectady, New York.
0: Yeah, I keep on saying just New York. If I ever say just New York, it's chances are I'm saying Schenectady, which I can't say.
1: I just like saying Schenectady. I, 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 actually, that's going to come up a lot too. Which is um, why
0: I'm just going to say New York, and then Chris can pop in with the actual town name because I want to embarrass myself as, as, as few it, times as possible in this podcast.
1: You could say an area just northwest of Albany.
0: There we go. Just northwest of Albany is the place in New York. All right. In 1902, a uh, fellow named James J. Wood received a patent for an invention that GE ended up turning into a product. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: That would be the electric fan. Yes,
0: indeed. Something that is incredibly important down
1: here in the South. Also, uh, incredibly important for those of you who have computers. Yes. Or at least a lot of computers, which require a very small electric fan to keep the processors from overheating and your computer from shutting down.
0: Yes, we can thank James Wood for that. Not James Woods. Different guy. (laughs) I mean, he's awesome and everything. You could go up and thank him for the electric fan, and he might even say, you're welcome, but uh, that's not the right guy.
1: That was actually done for the Fort Wayne Electric Works. There's a really cool (laughs) well, to me, it was a really cool uh, uh, photo of this on the GE website because mm-hmm. it's got you know the big FWEW thing right in the, in the hub in the center of the fan, so it's it's a um, very um, turn of the century looking.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. In 1903, they created a, a, the world's largest steam turbine engine. At that point, it was uh, capable of generating 5,000 kilowatts.
1: Yeah, it went to the uh, Fisk Street station in Chicago. Yeah um and that was this is one of those things that uh Edison and his company beforehand were doing they were working on uh ways to electrify parts of the city yep so they were very big into creating these stations that could be placed in local areas to uh provide electricity to uh you know different parts of the town yeah and um how many people was it it was um uh well was it, well yeah you said that um you were talking about the kilowatts, but yeah, 5,000 uh, it, kilowatts. it used less space and uh, came in um, under budget. And was more efficient than yeah. they expected it would be.
0: Yeah, they thought that it was going to be – I think it was something like four times larger than what it actually was. So it was uh, – it, it really spoke to the the skills of the engineers and the designers behind it who were able to create a much more efficient system than they had originally uh, imagined.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, considering that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast how this all started, this whole venture was started in the uh, mid-1870s and we're talking about – 30 years later, and they're already making these these huge advances. It just, you know, and they speaking, really moved quickly.
0: Speaking of huge advances, in 1905, the Model <laughs> D12 hits the scene and changes the world. It was the greatest
1: thing since sliced bread. Yes. The
0: electric toaster.
1: There's another really cool picture of the toaster because it has no sides. Yeah.
0: It, I just sit there and look at that and like, that just looks like potential second degree burn written all over it. Yes. Yes. Keep the cat off the counter. Yeah. Keep keep everything off the counter. Put the electric toaster
1: in the backyard. Yeah. Uh, imagine, if you will, the, uh, the uh, traditional style uh, vertical toaster where you drop the bread inside the toaster. Yeah, the slots and everything. Yeah, with the slots. But the thing is – Remove on, on this the casing. Piece, yeah, and remove the casing. So it's basically just a metal framework. And I'm sure it worked great. Yeah. But uh, – <laughs> Yeah, but here again, GE is coming up with ways to monetize electricity. So hey, it's something else you can put in your home along with your fan and your light bulb. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. That's another thing is that, you know, GE had a vested interest in making sure that there were lots of products that ran on electricity so exactly. that you would want it. Uh, also in 1905, they established the Electric Bond and Share Company, which was designed to provide financing to smaller companies out there that were the, uh, so in a way to try and help out other companies that could potentially buy electricity from them, buy electricity from them, <laughs> or create things that they could then, uh, you know, these could be companies that, that the GE might acquire later, but, um, or or things
1: that made electrical equipment that made it necessary for people to buy more electricity from. Right.
0: Them. Lots of different reasons. Uh, and then eventually this, this, um, division, this, uh, service actually would evolve into GE's commercial finance division. Uh, back in 1906 on Christmas Eve, there was a historic event.
1: Yeah. Uh, Ernst Frederick Werner Alexanderson.
0: Yeah. Das ist richtig. He was uh, an an inventor who created a high frequency alternator, which was used in a radio broadcast, the world's first voice radio broadcast. So not a not radio communication that had been around for a little bit, right. and uh, and some some tests had been done. But this was the first time there was a radio broadcast made on Christmas Eve. Um, So that's pretty interesting that it was a GE employee who created the uh, high-frequency alternator that made that possible. Uh, In 1908, uh, GE built 30 94-ton gearless electric locomotives for the New York Central Railroad. Uh, So again, still very much in that railroad uh, mode of transportation. I mean we're still talking the the earliest parts of the 20th century. So Mm -hmm. that's still the best way to get lots of stuff across – large spaces.
1: Well, at um, the time uh they if you coupled two locomotives together, uh and these were 2800 horsepower locomotives mm. each. Uh so if you coupled two of them together, they could pull pretty much anything that they could put on uh you know, on a train car. They were saying that they uh they could handle the 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 uh, loads that they were putting on them at that point. So yeah. these were substantial machines. Yeah, the
0: heaviest loads that had been pulled at that by that time were were pullable by these things uh, in 1909 the research and development lab produced a, a ductile tungsten filament which made incandescent bulbs much more efficient it was a um,
1: William D Coolidge helped yep, out with
0: that yep William D Coolidge is the guy responsible and yeah. Uh, so yeah this this made incandescent bulbs last longer than they had before and uh, which was good because even back when they were first hitting the scene uh, they weren't they didn't last terribly long, with a few exceptions. A few Depends hundred hours. On, yeah, it all depended on what the filament was made out of.
1: And uh, Edison's, I believe, was made out of a, a bamboo, if mm. I'm not mistaken. The, uh, the old bamboo? <laughs> uh, well, and uh, the funny thing about this tungsten filament that uh, Mr. Coolidge came up with, it's still basically the one that incandescent bulbs use today use. Yeah. So um, it's it's proved... Long-lasting.
0: Yes, yes, and GE has also looked into alternatives to incandescent bulbs, which we will talk about uh, further in. But uh, in 1910, they developed uh, the company developed the first electric cooking range. Do you know what that was called?
1: Yes. Well, it was a brand that's still used today for uh, appliances. Hotpoint.
0: Hotpoint. 1912. So in 1912, a lot of stuff happens. First of all, Coffin steps down as the president of GE. Uh, and E. W. Rice takes the the helm, and uh, GE in- starts to introduce improvements in vacuum tube design. So, not inventing vacuum tubes, but improving upon them. Uh, also, was uh, uh, they contributed to the creation of the very first electrically propelled navy vessel, the USS Jupiter.
1: Yeah, it used a uh, seven thousand horsepower horsepower turbine processor. And uh was a twenty thousand ton collier.
0: Yeah, and you know what happened in nineteen twenty with the Jupiter? It's pretty exciting. So you have the the first electrically propelled navy vessel. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the Jupiter. In nineteen twenty, uh the, the Navy decided to refit the Jupiter to to transform it into the USS Langley. Mm. And it became the very first aircraft carrier. Wow. So the Jupiter would eventually become the first aircraft carrier. So it's two firsts the first electrically propelled v- vessel for the Navy and the first uh, aircraft carrier. Uh, also in 1912, GE began its plastics department.
1: Which just goes to show you they've graduated. Oh, nice. Thanks. Um, yeah, they. Uh, they I'm be- not
0: going to do a seduce joke. That's okay. not going to happen. No.
1: All right. But they, uh, you might say, you know, wow, that. I, I didn't really realize that plastics were around. Well, they—I would say they probably weren't in the way that a lot of us think of plastic now.
0: Yeah, this was mostly that would be later. These would mostly be used for industrial purposes, like wire insulating wires.
1: Yeah, and they were phenolic, which, um, based on my own personal limited knowledge of plastics was sort of a hard uh brittle plastic.
0: Yeah, this isn't moldable plastic. That would come later. So in uh 1913 they developed the hot cathode high vacuum x-ray tube which uh helped make uh make it x-rays more efficient and uh and reliable so that uh, doctors could use this technology in a way that would uh it would it would consume
1: less energy and it was e- easier to control. And you know what it used? What's that? Tungsten.
0: Yeah, of course it did. So instead um, of a,
1: a cold cathode, uh, aluminum cathode. So
0: 1914. Well, this is the year where one of those four men I mentioned, Edwin J. Houston or Houston, when he uh, he passes away in 1914. That same year, GE starts to provide uh, electrical components that are used within the locks in the Panama Canal.
1: Thanks, President Roosevelt.
0: There we go. Uh, 1915, GE develops Calrod, which is a heat-conducting ceramic that also acts as a, an insulator. Yep. Used in electric range tops. Sorry.
1: Um, yeah, one of the uh, – one again, this is one of the uh, topics that will come up probably a, a handful of times in this uh, discussion. Um, Calrod is still in use. Yep. Um, GE has been pretty good about finding materials that uh, – have multiple uses and just do so well that they, you know, they hang around for years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If it ain't broke. Uh, 1917, they developed the first hermetically sealed refrigerator.
1: Mm, refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when not, we were talking about the icebox. Box. Yeah. We're starting to speak metaphorically.
0: Right. Finally. Yeah, because before, th- before that, it was literal. You actually did have to get a big block of ice and put it in a, a box to try
1: and keep stuff cold. Meanwhile, uh, dozens of, of ice men are hanging out outside uh, Menlo Park in Schenectady, <laughs> shouting and waving their fists.
0: And you know, big signs made out of ice rapidly melting. <laughs> in 1918, they developed the magnetron which was a, a vacuum tube that uses magnetic fields to control power output. And uh, you guys have probably heard us talk about magnetrons before because they've been used in a couple of different technologies, uh, one of which was radar. Yes. But then one of the guys who was working on radar with a magnetron noticed something interesting.
1: Oh, yes, the uh, chocolate bar melting in his pocket.
0: Yes, which indicated that there was something hinky going on, and that led to the, uh, the discovery of microwaves and their potential use as a heating element. And so, yes, magnetrons now are used in not just radar, but also microwaves. Hmm. I feel like I'm being cooked slowly. Yeah. This could probably be useful for something. Uh, And that same year, they also developed a 200 kilowatt alternator that allowed, uh, for transoceanic radio broadcasts. So now people can talk to each other across the ocean and, uh, and yell insults at each other,
1: uh, directly. Actually, it was used, uh, during World War I, too, to transmit information between, uh, the Allied expeditionary, yeah, expeditionary force and, uh, and the United States itself from, from back and forth. during uh during the war to communicate plans and things.
0: And speaking of World War One, all right, so in nineteen nineteen, this is this is where I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent. Nineteen nineteen, here's a big mess in World War One. So the United States government uh decided during World War One that it would be really important to gather together all of the different companies uh and technologies that had to do with radio. Oh right. Because mm-hmm. that would be very useful during the war effort. Mm-hmm. So they essentially commandeered everything more or less. I I am oversimplifying for the purposes of this podcast, but the United States essentially commandeers all these different companies' assets that are dealing with radio technology. When the war is over, uh, the the United States says, um, well, we don't really want to give all this stuff back to companies that have overseas elements because that could uh, eventually be bad. We need an American company, a gosh darn Patriotic American company to take over radio development, and so they go to several different companies, including GE, and say form an American company uh, that's all about radio. So they form the Radio Corporation of America, or RCA. Mm-hmm. So this is 1919, and GE is uh, the the uh, has controlling interest in RCA, but other companies do too, including Westinghouse mm-hmm. and AT and T. Yep. As well as others. Uh, So it's kind of a complicated relationship here. But yes, so GE has – I saw that on
1: its Facebook page. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's complicated.
0: complicated. GE has controlling interest in RCA. And the very first CEO of RCA is a man named Owen D. Young. He will become important in a little bit. So moving on in 1920, GE creates a portable X-ray machine. So now you can look at people on the go.
1: Yeah, they, uh, <clears throat> they put in an x-ray tube and the transformer assembly uh, in – basically it was immersed in oil, um, which enabled this technology to work. But uh, the device only weighed 20 pounds, um, and it could be used also for, uh, for dental x-rays, yep. which is important.
0: Now, we still haven't reached the point where we have x-ray specs, but that's probably a good thing.
1: Well, that didn't come along until the uh, invention of the comic book ad. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right there with Charles Atlas.
1: Exactly. Uh,
0: yeah, no, we you wouldn't want those. Uh, ionizing radiation, staying close to you for a long amount of time, turns out to be a bad thing.
1: Yeah, and then there are the people that you, you know, never mind. Um, so- well, yeah,
0: like, wow, look at her skeletal structure. Uh, anyway, so 1921, a plane uh, sets a, an altitude record of 40,800 feet. And the way it does it is it uses something called a supercharger, which was developed by general electric and uh
1: yeah. the guy the guy <laughs> I, I love these stories yeah. a guy named sanford moss who who uh realized at sixteen years old that if you compress uh fuel where if you if you burn fuel in compressed air environment, you could get more energy out of the the uh the, the reaction, of, yeah,
0: exactly. The combustion creates more energy yes. than it would without the compressed air.
1: What he said, and uh, and he he you know was working for GE, and they turned that into a uh, well into a whole line of jet engines, yeah. which would happen later. But yeah, so <laughs> huge deal. In
0: 1922, Coffin retires from the board. He had already mm-hmm. retired as president. Now he he had become a, a member of the board, and now was retired. Uh, and Rice retires as the president. And that's when Owen D. Young, the former head of RCA, becomes the new chairman of the board. And a guy named Gerard Swope becomes the new president of GE. Mm-hmm. And Swope and, uh, and Young together began to really focus on creating, uh, gadgets for the home. Yeah. Appliances for the home. They really started to push GE. To make more of those and, and, uh, not, not to abandon its industrial, uh, uh, its, its industrial efforts as well. It was still making stuff for industry and for companies, oh, factories, yes. that kind of stuff. But that uh, they wanted to have a whole line of appliances. And, um, that's also when, uh, oh, and, and Swope, by the way, another thing that's interesting about him, Gerard Swope, the president at that point, he was known for, really working to improve labor conditions Mm -hmm. he was he was really on the side of employees more often than not and so he worked to make sure that the uh the the labor conditions within ge were were the best they could be he also worked with labor relations and was very much on their side for um uh negotiations so swope was kind of a uh Kind of a popular president, really, of GE. Yeah. while well, he was there, and um, they also in 1922 created a radio station in
1: New York. What town was that? That would be in Schenectady. There you go, and it was WGY. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this might not sound very exciting, but it was one of the very first uh, to begin regular broadcasting. Yeah, uh, using a, and this is funny in today's in, in today's thinking, a 1500 watt transmitter. Yeah. Which probably would get you, uh, a few miles away. Yeah. Here's your traffic report. We got Charles up in the tree outside the office. Charles,
0: what's, what's going on out there? There's a horse. All right. And moving on to your requests. So, uh, it would yeah. get better. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, eventually you'd have the zoo crew in there. So in 1925. <laughs> but you'd uh, have to have a zoo. Yeah. A race car driver named Peter DePaolo wins the Indianapolis 500 driving a car that also happens to have a GE. Uh, supercharger in it, so thanks, Mister Moss. Another little jet engine right there in the car.
1: Well, no, but it it did the same had the same effect on yes. that Dusenberg that yes. he was driving. Yes, it did. Um,
0: uh, yes. it, well, same effect in that it went really fast. It didn't reach yes. forty thousand feet. I hope. So in nineteen twenty six, uh, I, 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 never mind. Nineteen twenty six, Charles Coffin passes away. Mm. So uh, he's, he, you know, his passing was another uh, end of an era. Uh, at that same time, RCA, the Radio Corporation of America, acquired mm-hmm. several other networks, and formed something called the National Broadcasting Company,
1: or NBC. Hmm. I feel like I've heard of that. Do do do. Okay. Actually, I told you before we started that I had a bit of color to add to the RCA discussion. Yeah. Um. Found out, and and apparently this is a myth, but it, but the the musical nature of that is true. The notes that you just sang, which are uh, recognizable to those of us in the United States as uh, the the tones that NBC uses on its broadcasts, happened to work out to GEC.
0: Oh, clever.
1: Now, uh, the the myth is that, uh, that that's for General Electric Corporation. Um, from what I understand, that is just a myth, Yeah. but if they, they are in the right uh, position. So if you play GE, go, go out to your piano. If you've got one, play GEC and you will. I want to believe
0: that. that just as much as I want to believe Hal is Hal because it's three letters off from IBM.
1: I, so, I uh, think that's probably more, likely. more true.
0: <laughs> it's more true than this less true thing. Yes. Yeah. So in,
1: <laughs> it's more true than this less true thing. In, in
0: 1927, GE's uh, WGY starts sending out the first TV signals to be picked up by a home television and it's in a little town in New York. It's called Schenectady. That's right. So in 1929, GE installs this, this excites me. Because mm-hmm. I'm such a theater geek, right? In 1929, GE installs electronic theater lighting controls at the Chicago Civic Opera. Mm-hmm. All right, so as a theater geek, I have to say this revolutionizes the way the way people can uh, perform theater. Mm-hmm. Because before, you typically had lighting that was very much stationary because you couldn't really do a whole lot with it, or you couldn't turn lights on and off easily um, because you were using sometimes open flames. Mm-hmm. Um, Yikes. Switching to electronic lights means that you could turn things off and on very quickly. There was no, you know, it wasn't going to fade up or fade down if, unless you wanted it to. Mm-hmm. But it, it allowed you to do some very dramatic staging opportunities that just weren't available before that. So it's really done a lot to change the way live theater works, mm-hmm. um, which is exciting to me and no one else. So we'll move on. 1930.
1: Um, so that was the very, I was going to, <laughs> sorry.
0: Oh, there we go! Uh, in uh, 1930, uh, GE introduced the first washing machine. Did you see a
1: picture of this? Yes, I did.
0: It looks like an oil drum with a home appliance of some sort on top of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the way they they used to look. I mean, uh, the the thing is though, with those old washing machines, you didn't. Uh, you know, we think of them as being uh, sort of square now, but they also have a rotating. No, they're
0: totally square. Well. <laughs>
1: You're, that's because you're such a hep cat.
0: Yeah, I just wear clothes once and then I burn them.
1: Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, these didn't have the, uh, the holes that, and a spin cycle that, you know, would drain the water. You were, you'd wash it and then you'd take them out of there and you'd wring them yourself. Yep. So, uh, but they worked. You didn't have to take it down and pound your stuff on rocks down that, by the river. That's right.
0: Yeah. It was a, that was definitely an improvement. Uh, 1930 was also when GE began to provide electrical systems for a building that was going up in New York City. Uh, A tall building. A very tall building. The tallest one at that point, the Empire State Building.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, they did a whole lot of stuff with the wiring there. Safety switches, switchboards, panel boards, and all sorts of other electrical uh, infrastructure that went in the building. And, of course, you know, people rushed right in to pick up spaces in that building. Oh, wait. No, they didn't. But that's another story.
0: Yeah. We could do a whole podcast just on the Empire State Building. Actually, there are quite a few podcasts we could do. A podcast on RCA – yeah. Would be fascinating. Oh yeah, we could do that, uh, and we're gonna actually talk a little bit about that in just a second. Anyway, um, I should so, have saved the GEC for that. So GE starts. It's. Uh, it's moldable plastic division within the company.
1: Yeah. Now this is when we start getting into plastics such as we know them now, where yeah. you can, you can form them into different shapes. And I mean, not that you couldn't before, but they're flexible, more flexible. And they it, start taking
0: that. the place of other materials in home appliances. So mm-hmm. you'd find stuff that fewer things made out of metal and more things made out of plastic from this point forward. Yeah. Also in 1930, so 1919, RCA is formed. In 1930, the United States holds antitrust hearings against General Electric regarding RCA. Wait. And didn't they – weren't they supposed to – wait. This is where I rant. Wait, what? Right? So the United States in 1919 tells GE, hey, you guys need to make this company. So they do. And then in 1930, the U.S. says, hey, you guys have a monopoly on this company we made you make.
1: Get rid of it. I know, Right. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It drives
0: me crazy. You've got – I mean –
1: Not like you weren't there already. Uh, Yeah, I know, really.
0: Uh, It's a short trip. The United States – so yeah, the United States says, all right, we can't let all these different assets go back to the companies they belong to originally because who knows what could happen. So let's make this one company – uh, by telling these other companies to form it. And then comes up to GE and says, hey, you can't do that anymore. That thing we told you to do, stop doing that. And so GE divested itself of the controlling interest to RCA. And uh, that's, you might think, oh, well, that's the end of that story. No, but it's going to take two podcasts before we get back to it. <laughs> um, anyway, the uh, uh, yeah, this drives me nuts. <laughs> oh, also that same year, There was another company that also had to divest its interest in RCA. Yeah. Westinghouse. Mm -hmm. So you know GE and Westinghouse, these competitors, both owned interest in RCA. Both of them had to divest interest in it so that uh, it would no longer be considered uh, an antitrust issue. Mm -hmm. All right. And that brings us to 1931 and the end of our podcast. And we decided to end it in 31 because 1931 is the year that Thomas Alva Edison passed away.
1: Mm. But he lived long enough to see his company become – pardon the pun, a powerhouse in its industry and yes. create several industries as well.
0: Yes, it was definitely an instrumental company at that time. It would only grow to be more so over the following decades. So we are going to conclude our podcast of part one of the GE story right here. We will pick up in part two in 1932 and we will continue on and there will be a part three because this is this is a company that's got a a storied past so join us for our next episode and if you guys have any suggestions for uh, episode topics whether it's a company we should feature whether it's uh, an interview we should do or just some other kind of technology you would like to hear about let us know you can contact us through email. Our address is techstuffdiscovery.com. Or you can send us a message on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon.
1: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.